Hello and welcome to My Roots Are Showing with myself, Nadina Regan. This is the podcast based in Dublin, Ireland, where we chat to well-known people about their lives and about what has made them who they are today. Now, it seems like barely a minute since I was last chatting to you on the podcast. You might remember that the last podcast was with the Irish-American diplomat, Samantha Power. We talked about her life and very complicated career serving as part of the Obama administration and becoming the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. This podcast out, we're moving into very different terrain from uh, politics and diplomacy to soccer and therapy. For the first month of the new decade, and Happy New Year, everyone, I really wanted to have as my guest a man who understands both the limelight and the very low times that can come when you get hit by obstacle after obstacle. Richie Sadlier is a former professional footballer, now turned therapist, soccer pundit and the author of a really brilliant memoir about his life. Richie's book uh, Recovering, which was co-written with Dion Fanning, came out a few months back actually, but I was keen to have him on the podcast this month in January because he's taking part in the first Fortnite festival in Dublin this month, as I am myself. And it's a festival that I'd like to give a bit of prominence to because it is an arts and mental health festival that's devoted to having talks and workshops and gigs and readings that all foreground mental health and the importance of taking care of yourself and minding yourself. January, as we all know, is a very tough month. As I'm talking, we're approaching Blue Monday which weirdly is a day that was coined by, I believe, a travel agency somewhere, but I think everyone still identifies with the idea anyway. It's the third Monday in January and people really see it as the bluest day of the year because, of course, they haven't been paid yet. It's January. It's after Christmas. They've spent all their money. They might be doing dry January. Everything is just very, very tough. And I say that actually in in kind of a jokey tone uh, because, I mean, for some people, it's fine. It's just a tough month to get through. But for many other people, it's much more than that. It's much harder than that. So that is all by way of saying that that this podcast this month feels like a good opportunity to deliver an uplifting conversation with a man who has been through the ringer. Yes, Richie Sadlier was a professional footballer, as he documents in Recovering. But he's also a man who was forced to retire very early, just in his 20s, when his injuries meant that he could not continue depression, alcohol dependency, all followed. And he struggled too with um, some memories that he'll talk about later that had haunted him since his childhood. Eventually he hit rock bottom, began anew and reinvented himself as a soccer pundit on RT and elsewhere and a psychotherapist as well as a podcast host himself with Second Captains. His book Recovering won the Sports Book of the Year and the Irish Book Awards in 2019 and It highly deserved it. In our interview, we'll be discussing that book, as well as his origins in Dublin, his family, his professional career in football, and how he got himself through afterwards. By the way, before we go to that interview, a quick reminder that if you'd like to support this podcast, please do talk about it to your friends. It all helps. Or please do consider dropping a little line or review uh, on iTunes or anywhere that you get your podcasts or giving it a star rating if you enjoy it. It always, always is a really helpful thing to do. Also, if you want to get in touch, my DMs are open on Twitter, so you can contact me at My Roots Are Show, that's the show page, or at my own page, at Nadina Regan. Right, this is Richie Sadlier's My Roots Are Showing. Richie Sadlier, you are very welcome to My Roots Are Showing. How are you? I'm great. Thanks a million for having me on. Thanks for coming in. Now, as you know, by the magic of uh, podcasting, we are recording this in December, but as it goes out, it is the start of January. So I must ask, have you New Year's resolutions on the horizon? 
Oh, I don't think I do. I, I generally tend to have really short term goals is probably the wrong word. Just to generally, I just try and mind myself as best I can, stay out of trouble and have as much crack as I can on a daily basis. Well, you know, um, because I tweeted about it, your book, mm. uh, Recovering, was one of my absolute favourites of last year and a favourite of many people. I mean, of course, it won the Top Sports Award at the Irish Book Awards. I was there to watch you defeat a really crowded field, it must be mm. said, of hot competitors. Uh, Matt Cooper was in there with his uh, Jamie Heaslip book. Also, Kieran McCarthy with his book about Skibbereen Rowing Club. Um, there was a very good list this year. How did it feel to have your name called up, uh, called out and for you to go up there and accept the award? It was, it was, so if you remember on the night, the first award um, was won by Vicky Phelan. And I'd met Vicky a couple of times and there was a standing ovation, like an extraordinary story, extraordinary woman. And there was just so much, there was, there was an amazing mood in the room at the time. And she spoke lovely and there was a, there was a recorded message from Ray Darcy, I think, congratulating her. And then it dawned on me when everyone sat down, it's like, oh God, the sports award is next. So if I do win, I'm going to have to follow that. Um, but even being there, like I, I would be asked when I got there on the night, like various interviews beforehand, you know, what, what does it mean to be nominated and how do you feel like being here? How does it feel being here? And I honestly hadn't given it much thought. A, an award wasn't in my sights at all. I assume it is with some people. When you sit down to write something, you, you have an idea on what the competition is going to look like and you have an idea on what's going to be required to get uh, recognition. It was never in my sights at all. So I just kind of showed up in the night, I, was, I had to get a tuxedo and just thought I'll enjoy it. And if I win, I'll just make sure as best I can to thank the right people. But then when I walked, like I walked up and so the, the, the fellow presenting it gave me the, the trophy. And then Miriam kind of just gestured towards the microphone. I knew I just had to repeat what Vicky Phelan did. And um, it was one of those moments, I don't know if you have them, I have them all the time where you sit there and go, I would never have imagined this scene possible. There was there was a time in my life where this scene would be completely beyond a, a possibility at all. So um, I remember just keeping it as brief as I could and just being thankful to whoever and saying I was grateful and getting off stage. And But I didn't bring my phone with me on stage and I didn't know. In those awards shows, you're taken backstage and to do a series of organised interviews. They basically corral you yeah. into a pen and you're stuck there for yeah. the night so I, I I didn't have my phone with me and I knew I was like I wanted to contact Fiona my wife and tell her but I didn't I don't know her number <laughs> so <laughs> even so I went into a room and I met someone who I knew who I who I knew she knew Fiona as well I was like will you text Fiona and tell her she goes I don't have her number and I said and she goes what is it I, said, I don't know my own wife's number sorry so get on to her on Instagram or something so that was it and I'm about it was about 25 minutes or a half hour after I won the award that I was eventually back at my table with my phone in my hand. So I actually missed a lot of the do. But I was kind of, I was actually shaken when, when I did my first award, uh, interview afterwards. I, I don't know what, it was, adrenaline or nerves or shock or whatever. I, I was like, the person who spoke to me kind of said, Jesus, I'm shaking. And she put her hand and said, Jesus, you are. And I don't know what that was all about, but it, it was like, it's a lovely thing to do to be nominated and to win and Loads and loads of people were happy for me. So it was obviously, it's it's a it's a lovely thing. Recovering is a wonderful book. It's uh, written with uh, Dionne Fanning. Mm. It is a book that is very beautifully structured, very evocative, very raw. It talks about your career as a footballer and of course your very early retirement mm. in your 20s uh, due to injury. And then on to discuss, as I was mentioning in the introduction, really quite a hazardous aftermath, uh, falling into a lot of different, um, I suppose, traps that can come in the wake of having had incredible early success, followed by a very difficult onward path. Mm. Starting off as a kid, you mentioned in the book, you know, your dad had a family of four, I think, by the time he was in his, mm. by the time he was 30. 30 yeah. um, and he himself, as you record very honestly, suffered with alcoholism how do you think that affected you well I was brought up I suppose on, on the back of it to view alcoholism as something to be swept under the carpet you didn't talk about it outside the family and it was a source of shame and embarrassment so that 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 was that seed was planted at an early age 
there was lots of different ways I think I was impacted like I could do like a lot of people say well that's the only childhood I ever had it's the only family I was ever brought up in so I don't really know how it impacted me but I've been banging away in therapy about this for years like when you train to become a therapist you, you go to therapy and I've just stayed in it and I, I think like a lot of people who are children of addicts or, or people who have issues with, with, with substance abuse, I I took it fairly personally. Do you know the, the unreliability or the inconsistency or the unavailability or the broken promises, all that stuff, the stuff that's the, the opposite of what you would promote as a healthy environment for a child to be in? Um. I kind of in my head probably took that as, you know, I, I, I'm not good enough if I was a bit better or a bit more this or less that. Um, he'd come home and all this kind of stuff. But And I deliberately didn't fill it with war stories about my dad's drinking. Um, I kind of tried to do my best in the book to describe the impact on me. And one of the big impacts it had on me, I think, I took it upon myself that I had to really prove myself. I had to go above and beyond to prove myself worthy to my dad. Um. And the only way I really knew how to impress people as a kid or the the thing I did better than anything else that I got, you know, you know, praise or pats on the back or was was playing football and scoring goals. So I actually used it all, I think, as a as a real as a driving force behind pretty much everything I did. Um, it was like, and, and this is really common if you've never kicked a ball, you can relate to this process. Like it, it's like I really want to make my parent proud of me. And I, like a lot of boys, taught the world of my dad. I was struck, though, by a line you used in the memoir. Um, you sort of talked about what you wanted from your father. And you said, I just want him to watch me play football. Mm. And I thought about that idea. I just want him to watch me. Really what you were really begging for and what a lot of kids of alcoholics or people with other problems don't get is attention and that's what we need as kids notice me i'm over here like i need support i need love i need nurturing i need and those weren't lang phrases that eight or ten year olds have but it's just that thing of going okay i i, I need to do a little bit more here to be noticed but often it's why the same people find their way into the limelight because they're needy no offense no that's okay <laughs> it takes a lot to offend me to be honest um yeah, I suppose I, I, I like uh, why I, I find it really interesting when people do, do this, whether they come to therapy to do it or whether they do it openly in interviews um, where they kind of pick apart. Well, why am I the way I am? What, what, what is it that got me not so much into a particular area, but what makes me behave the way I do? And I think a lot of my behavior stemmed from this notion that I wasn't good enough. And I think a lot of that came from the idea that my dad didn't think I was. To talk a little bit about how you got on, I mean, the Broadford Rovers mm -hmm. was your first career point, uh, which you started in at about six. And uh, then actually you had that Millwall trial very shortly after you're leaving cert and you signed a one-year deal for £175 mm. uh, a week plus your digs. Mm -hmm. So not quite the salubrious contract that sometimes we come to think uh, is characteristic of every professional mm. footballer. But you were thrilled and probably a bit terrified as well. I was, you know, one of the things that I didn't give that much attention to, like I all the way up, I thought I'd love to be a footballer. And it's a little bit different now. But back then, if you wanted to be a professional footballer, you had to leave the country. And England was the obvious focus. And when I when the opportunity came along and the trial went well and I signed the contract, it was kind of like this. It just dawned on me, oh, no, like I'm going to have to leave the family. And my, my two younger sisters living in the house at the time. I think my brother was away in a J1 in, in America. But I had this group of mates who are still the same ones I have today. It was really, really tight with them. Do you know, like, your teenage years, you know, the f you form these bonds with people. But by that, and this is way before WhatsApp or Facebook or FaceTime or all the million ways you can keep in contact with people. This is 1996. I didn't even have a mobile phone. So the way I would contact them was just on the house phone in the evening. Like it sounds really primitive, but that's what it was at the time. 96 is when I got my first mobile phone. The big bricks, the 088s. Yeah. You didn't get one of those? No. Well, you see, I was so conscious of 
I became really weirdly became really self-conscious when I became a footballer because like I'm never going to change and I'm not going to be flash. So I was the last one to get a phone. I was the last one to drive. I didn't drive, I think, till I was 19 or 20. Um, you see, people don't understand. There was one guy in our town in Skibbereen who had a mobile phone and everybody would be like, oh, he really thinks he's like so cool. It's Irish, yeah, it's like an Irish <laughs> thing is I look at your man and you just want to you want to see him fail. <laughs> I said, I, I don't want, there might be enough begrudgery out there because I've just got a dream job, but I don't want to add to that by, you know, being so flash just to get something, which is clearly just a fad, a mobile phone. Like, they're not going to last. This is my thinking at the time. Um, but so you didn't want to be flash, yeah. um, but missing your friends, I mean, the loneliness, the profound loneliness of the young footballer is very well described in many memoirs. And you get into it here as well. It's, you're cut off from everyone and at the same time the pressure is immense. Mm. I think most people when they hear this they go oh, okay get the violins out whoopity do professional footballers has a, t- a tough early on but the vast majority of people and you're aware of this when you're going through it so when you're 17 or 18 or 19 you know that 90% of you will be gone by the age of 20. You, ju- you just will and it gets really really competitive and the 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 numbers the the for the want of a better phrase the failure rate at that level is quite high, so you kind of know that the chances are that all these sacrifices and the hard work and and the the struggles are going to be for nothing, um so and I started to believe that as well, and and like the comp the competition bit of it, like it's it's so fierce because. Like on the one hand, like you're, you're training with lads who have the same colour shirt as you and you're in the team with, and you all have the same crest on your shirt, but you're competing for a limited amount of places in the team. Only 11 of you can play and then there's only a limited amount of people can be employed by the club at any time, only early, low 20s or something, mid 20s back then. And they also have money to purchase or sign lads from anywhere in the world, like anywhere. So you're not just competing with the other fellas who happen to play in your position within your club. You're also aware that at any point the club can employ someone and that would be the reason you won't get your game and then you won't get your contract renewed and then you'd be out of work. Do you think you had the right personality type to thrive in an environment like that? I don't know. I remember at the start I would constantly be told you need to toughen up, you're too nice. Um, I would. There would be loads of times when like so on a football field like you, you you're there might be a particular player on the opposition whose job it is to mark you so you might be in close contact with this one person for the majority of the hour and a half of the match and I at some point would always kind of strike up a conversation early on so you just for whatever it could be an observation about the referee's performance or something it didn't matter but if a coach in Millwall saw me do that and there was one day when I cl- clobbered into this fella um and I, I conceded a foul. The referee blew the whi- blew his whistle. And the fellow line goes, Jesus, big man, gives a hand up. And he put his hand out. And I put my hand out. And I lifted him up. And at halftime, I'd say five minutes of the 15-minute halftime break was spent by the manager just absolutely ripping me to shreds. Like, you, you know, you're not out there to make friends. You're not out there to be nice to anyone. You need to realise what your job is. So I had to kind of completely change my approach. Your job in the position, I was a striker, like a six foot two or three striker. So I had to physically impose myself on other people. Did it help when it came to being on panels with Eamon Dunphy? (laughs) That was a different experience, but some of the same challenges. Because that was a weird one because I I was part of me like anyone who goes into a new job. You want your new colleagues to like you and respect you and you want to fit in. But the nature of the job as a pundit on a panel is that you have to assert yourself and give your view. And if you're simply there as a nodding dog who's going to agree with everything, you won't last. But I thought if little old me, who was probably 30 or 32 at the time, would challenge the likes of Eamon or John Giles, they're all that too early, too soon or in the wrong way. So I'm going to get eaten alive. So I had to carefully deal with all of that stuff as well. But there was a part of me asked there about my personality. There's, there's one thing that I... I think it stood to me as I'm just bloody, I can persevere with something. There's just a stubborn streak within me that even in the voices that are in my head telling me, you're going to get found out here. You don't belong. You're not good enough for this. You're, you know, it's a matter of time before you're going to be fall flat in your face and everyone's going to be laughing. There'll be part of me as well be driven to shut him up 
and go, I'm going to make this work. Whatever it was, in all the various different things I, I, I've gone into doing. And I'm going, I'm, I'm going to need to be as good as I can be for this to work. So, yes, st- stubbornness is, is underrated, I think. <laughs> well, you were learning fairly young and learning a lot, taking on some hard lessons. Um, I was very struck by your admission early on in the book that at times you were so overwhelmed by the scenario that faced you with the fans looking on mm. that you sometimes exaggerated injury mm. to get yourself off the pitch, which is actually kind of a huge admission. Mm. Very few people would admit that because in that world it's hyper macho and it's you're, you're meant to be this particular version of masculinity and again like I said a moment ago you have to physically impose yourself on others and even when you feel pain or you're injured your job is to persevere through it Um, holding your hand up and saying you know I, I need treatment here I, I'm this is too sore I need to come off Um, even in legitimate cases of injury would be held against you at that time at that club. But I did have a spell when, when I was 18. I was in the team every week and the crowd absolutely hated me. Would boo me every time I touched the ball, would jeer me when I'd walk in and out of the stadium. I'd be in social situations in pubs or restaurants and they'd come up to me and just belittle and embarrass me. And I'd be with family or friends. And so this was my world for a while. And I was like, this is very different to what I thought this was going to be when I signed up and there was this one particular day I did get a kick on my, on my ankle and it was sore like it was like it, but but I remember going okay this this is my out here I'm having a stinker of a match the crowd hate me I'm sure the manager isn't impressed at me all the teammates are having a go at me I think we were losing anyway I thought this is a win for everyone um but can you imagine then how 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 little I thought of myself because you walk off and you have to go to this charade of going oh yeah Jesus, you know it's really sore and good at that to come off and God will I be okay for the match next week you have to go through all this nonsense um, and, and when you're injured and you're a footballer 90% of your conversations will be people asking you about your injury because when you're a footballer no other aspect of your life is of interest to anyone they'll talk about last week's match or next week's match or your most recent performance or your current injury so I had to go through the motions and all of that, but it was a sign of just how difficult things got and how ill-equipped I was at the time to deal with them. On a total side point, who are the best players at doing the dramatic injury? <laughs> Do you know what? Well, I, I, th- th- there used to be a thing, and I'm sure one or two teammates of mine would do it. There's no point mentioning their names because they wouldn't be relevant to, to people who are listening to this, but they would go down. They would get a knock and they would go down. And then they wait for the physios to come on. And then they would get up and in a very dramatic way, kind of limp. And, and, and then after a while, the limp would magically go away within 60 seconds. So they'd get the rest. They'd get a drink of water from the physio. And then they get this huge round of applause from the stadium, who from their point of view thought this fella is a soldier. He was dead in the ground a minute ago and he's picked himself up. So all this kind of nonsense. And I used to look at these two lads going, I know what you're at. <laughs> It's all part of the pantomime with some people. Yeah, well, I mean, you did um, impress at the same time. You recovered your confidence mm. and things began to go very well. When you look back, was there kind of a, a golden period for you when everything was at that sort of sweet spot? Yeah, I can even feel my, my, my the, the, the feeling of it now. Um, so when I was about... 20 21 or 22 a lot of things combined I had I was four or five years older than I was when I first went away I started to feel comfortable in the club and in my surroundings I was a bit more mature I'd, uh, I I was settled in myself and I had a run where I'd no injuries and I was playing with a manager who I thought the world of and who really liked me and a load of teammates who were my friends and we were winning every week and it was so much fun and I was playing regularly and I was I was scoring and I remember at the time and my family would come over and friends would come over and I'd night out with them and I genuinely thought for a period that, that this is as good as this is as good as as life gets for anyone anywhere. Like do you know when you're there's a real false sense that the thing you love doing is the thing that everyone else loves doing. Because when you're in the world of football, you, you're only surrounded by people who are fanatical about football. So you can get this false sense of the importance of what you're doing. But uh, To be fair, I mean, the whole world really 
also has that sense it, most of the time. Like it's it's weird. Like I, I, I can like if you walk down the street and someone the only people that will recognize you are the people who support your team and they're the only ones who will say hello. So the vast majority of people you're ever in contact with are the ones who think you're a big deal and who thinks you love your team and whose mood all week will be impacted by the result on the Saturday. It's this weird, like really weird kind of parallel world that you're in. Um, so you, you think like football is like it's this amazingly important, meaningful thing. And it was to me personally really meaningful. Um, but I had a spell for for a year or so and I got to play for Ireland and it was, it was like it was amazing. And then it ended then with, with, with me picking up an injury in my hip. Mm. Um, and, and this mm. was the point, by the way, that you were getting questions from interviewers, you know, Millwall or Ireland. Mm. You were that sort of Roy McIlroy type moment when people were like, which way is he going to go? Mm. And those kind of questions would have felt quite difficult, presumably. Yeah, I suppose after a while. I mean, there, there was no such thing as media training back then. There, there was none at all. You were, you were, you were just told. They're the great days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you'd just be told here. Your man from the Daily Mail's out there. Do you want to speak to you? So you you'd go out, and I remember I got tripped myself up once on this. He, he was a really nice fella. He would talk to me about the match and started the interview, promoting the hell out of me. Jeez, you did really well, and God, blah blah blah. And then at one point he said, um, "Well, like, what's you, you all seem to get on? Like, what's the what's what's the secret? You thinking?" And I referred in passing to. You know, we all socialised together. We'd have nights out, and you know, it's great cracking. And then the headline the next day was um, "Booze is the secret to Millwall's success," says Sadler. Something like this. <laughs> I thought, oh God, I walked into that one. So after a while, you get through through either your own missteps or seeing other people being caught out. You just learn. There's a there's a there's a very easy way to navigate your way through any interview if your intention is to say nothing. It's when you want to be honest and give your opinion or give your hot take on what's just happened. This this is full of landmines then. Yeah, I think it was The Edge who said, if you don't want to get in trouble around a particular topic, just make sure that you are very, very boring. Mm. And then the reporter will either remove the question entirely if it's a print interview or even if it's a radio interview, sometimes edit it out and the listener will just be dulled into submission. Mm. So there are ways and I'm sure you two know all of them. Mm-hmm. But returning to where we were, where I think it was uh, you played your last 18 minutes for Ireland mm. and then very shortly after that point got an injury in your hip. And honest to God, my heart broke for you reading the book where you tried so hard mm. month after month after month through different operations, surgeries, at doctors to tell yourself that you could get back on that pitch and you just weren't giving up. I suppose a lot of it were just acts of desperation because the the more I allowed myself to consider the possibility that my career could end, I, I would have to then be forced to consider what that would look like or what that would feel like or what would I do. And did you have money in the bank? I, God, did I? I, w- I my, my weekly wage at the time was a little over, it was about somewhere between three and three and a half thousand pound a week, which is like, that, that's really good. Like for, for someone who had, I had no expensive habits at all. Once I bought a house and a car, like I didn't do anything to cost any money. And flights back and forth from Dublin was the biggest expense I ever had. So I would have had savings. But I also had career ending insurance and when you're a footballer, you can cash in your pension if you retire prematurely because of illness. Um, So financially, retiring when I did was actually a windfall, but I didn't realise that until I retired. But the build up to the possibility of retiring, I was just so fearful of the possibility of it happening, um, so determined and really stubborn that it wouldn't happen. and I'd also living in this world of Millwall where, like I mentioned a moment ago, you feel pain and you overcome it. It's what you do. It's your job as a Millwall footballer. It's what you do. Um, and it doesn't matter how tough things get, you, 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 you show up and you overcome all the difficulties. So I didn't really allow myself for a long time to even talk to others about the possibility of it. And I wouldn't talk to my family openly about it. Um, barely mentioned it to my girlfriend at the time. There was one friend who I'd, I would get drunk and I would, you know, we'd go, Jesus, what, what would you think you'd do? And I'd give some, we'd have some bit of a drunken conversation, but I I, I was just terrified. Um, and when it happened, like I was as heartbroken as a fella can be. Um, 
like I, I really was like it, I, I was just crying all the time and like I, it was a, it's a weird thing because like I'm I'm sure you and everyone listen to this you have bad days and you go through stuff but you can pick and choose who you tell Um people who didn't know me or who never met me knew I had gone to this because it's a very public thing and they and, and anyone who met me for a long long time after it out of being really compassionate and sound and friendly and nice would bring it up and then would feel the need to give a little spiel about having seen me play or what they thought might happen if I continued to play and it was all lovely stuff and it's stuff that I'd hope I would say to me if I was them at the time but it was just breaking my heart even more every every because I would be it was just this it's like sitting there, imagine hanging out with your ex-girlfriend every day and you didn't want to break up, like you're tormenting yourself. So it's like people kept bringing up this topic all the time. And I didn't want to watch football. I didn't want to talk about football. And I wanted to just escape and run away. It, it's so difficult because you can even see on people's faces that they don't know what to say, mm. you know, and you're looking at them and they go, first they're happy to see you and then they're trying to think about what to say. And then it's just very, very awkward. Uh, you know, I I had lost one particular gig in, in work and a friend of mine rang me up and he gave me some advice and he said, go out, go out, go out, go out, because you can't, you can't actually avoid it. You have to go through it. Mm. Um, and I know that was on a very small scale compared to what you would have encountered being a public figure and a celebrity. Uh, but even on that little level, it's, it's, it's your own world that you notice and, and you're just going, well, how, how, there's only one way you just have to keep going yeah and as well I, I was aware because so many of my mates were n- like not footballers so I wasn't like one of these lads who only knew about the world of football and everything outside of it was really strange and when it, like I retired on a Wednesday it went public on a Thursday and on the Friday Myself, I, I got the train up to Newcastle and my dad and my sister flew up and we were visiting my cousin who was two or three years older than me. He was there for surgery. He had cystic fibrosis since he's, he was a child and we were unsure whether he'd survived the surgery or not. And I went in to visit him and he was lying in the, in the hospital bed. He was topless and there was the, the scars from the surgery and he was wired up to various machines. And his mum was outside and his partner at the time and it was the first time I met my dad and my sister since I retired. And they were full of hugs. Oh, Jay-Z, how are you doing? Are you okay? And, and the newspapers were full of my news at the time. And then I was sitting in the hospital looking at my hall, going, he could be dead at the end of the month. Um, that's a tragedy. That's a heartbreaking story. That's awful. Like all the words that people were using to describe what I'd just gone through. But I, I knew that in my head. But it still didn't in any way lessen the impact on me of what had just happened to me. So I did this weird thing. I remember at the time going, like, don't you dare moan about this. Don't like, how dare you look at what Michal's going to. Don't you be one of these guys who spends the rest of his days sitting in pubs, boring people with what he's lost um, or complaining that you're heartbroken or whatever. So it didn't stop me feeling any of the feelings. It just weirdly prevented me from talking about them. And Michal did die, actually. And I remember being at his funeral a couple of weeks later and my uncle's kind of consoling me um, and other people consoling me because it's the first time I'd been back in, in, in Ireland since the news. And I remember just going, OK, this is all a bit, this is all a bit weird. Um, so I kind of at the time just went, OK, don't talk about this. So every interview you do, I went on Eamon Duffy's TV show. I just got a job as a football agent. And I gave the most polished performance a fella could give about dusting himself down and looking forward to the challenges ahead of him and being... Was that healthy? I don't know. It's just what I did. Um, I'm never sure because I've seen a few people do that. You know, they arrive and they go, I am in the best form of my life. And you look at them going, that doesn't make any sense at all. (laughs) And then later you see with the sneaky tweet or the the angry 3am Facebook post or something that actually they needed to get something out. Well, at the time, like I, so I was, I suppose that that interview on the TV show that night was the first time I was representing the company I worked for before it would just been me, the footballer. And mm. um, so I thought in order to justify my employment, I needed to project a certain image of being the guy you would go to if you're looking for career advice, because that's now my role in this football agency. So I shared it all down to a T and it was fine. And 
I was doing a sports science degree at the time, so that gave me some bit of structure, two days a week. Um, and I started getting media work. And that that served a purpose because it, it, it fed the bullshit that I was dealing with this well, that I was moving on well and that I wasn't looking back. Whereas all I was doing was kind of just looking back with full of regret and self-pity and poor me's and all the kind of stuff that you think when you've just lost something that means the world to you. Did you watch reruns? Of my matches? I never did. No. Um, do you know what I did? I, I don't think I said this. Do you know the song Love of My Life by Queen? Mm-hmm. There was the live at Wembley concert that they do. Um, obviously it's amazing. And I had the DVD of it. And for some, if you read the lyrics, the lyrics kind of just, I connected with them going, that's exactly how I feel. And football is the thing that's now leaving. And I did this thing, I would sit in my bedroom and just repeat this song. And with a can of Stella in my hand and just, I'd be crying. And I, I was just, this was, this was the kind of pathetic scenes that would happen in private. And then if I was in company with people, there'd be the different. I'd be different. I'd be the fella who's a student and who's an agent and who's a radio co-commentator and someone who had something to offer the world. But on my own, I was kind of going, I'm completely fucked. Like, I'm I'm beyond fucked here. Um, and this charade isn't going to last too much longer. The book is called Recovering, obviously, mm. and it's only partially concerned with football. Mm. You know, so much of it is about that plummet into partying, alcoholism and the realisation that you needed help. Um, was there that sort of moment that a lot of people who've been through that describe, you know, the absolute lowest point when you hit the floor and realise, well, you can't go any further down, so it's time to look up and look for help? I, I would have had lots of moments where I'd have my head in my hands going, things can't get worse. I can't feel any worse about myself or my future or my life. And it wasn't so much the surroundings or what had just happened. It was just the feeling of being completely tormented, um, which is maybe difficult to describe. But I, I would out like anyone who's a problem with drink or drugs, you've this mechanism within you that will just, if we, after a certain amount of time, you could play down the or forget or minimize the pain or you just rationalize or justify getting back in the horse again. It'll be different next time. Um, you're not that bad. Or the one I would often come back to is, you know, if if, sure, if people went through what I went through, they drink like this too. Um, and, and that's really common. Loads of people tell themselves a version of the same thing who, who are now in recovery. Um, I've heard it from, from loads of people. So weirdly, I, I, like I would have always thought before I knew anything about anything that if you were an alcoholic and you got to the point where you knew you needed to stop that I thought it would involve a massive event, that your final day would be, you know, a burning building, a big car crash, a, some big dramatic incident, police would be involved. Um, and mine was the opposite. It, it really was. I was sitting on my own in a beer garden um, and I'd been drinking for three days and, and I'd, I told myself um, like a million times at any point in the week, okay, we're going to do it differently now or I, I won't drink this weekend or if I do, I'll, I'll, it'll be measured or it'll be balanced or whatever, whatever bullshit I come up with. And it would be the same every time, the same every time I'd start and I'd, I'd be going for, for days. But I would always tell myself, sure, I'm single. It doesn't matter that I'm losing a few days and my work was part time or I didn't owe anyone any money and I never fought. I was never violent or aggressive. Like if I was, if, if, if I was drinking and this house was full of people, I'd be just chatting away to whoever's next to me. I wouldn't be the fella who who, who would stick out in the crowd. I wouldn't be dancing on a table. Um, so I would tell myself all these things just to convince myself that this isn't a problem. Um, and then this Sunday in, in, in the beer garden on my own, um, in August 2011, I can't explain why it happened then because there was nothing unique about this set of circumstances. Um, I just realised, I said, like, I'm, I'm, I'm beaten here. Um, and I wasn't even in conversation with anyone. No one had said anything and nothing had happened over the previous 36 hours. Um, and I just reached out to someone who I knew got sober and said, I need to do the same, but I know I won't be able to do it on my own. Can you give us a hand? And that's that's been the last time I've drank so far anyway. 
You did get a text as well from your sister Anna, which mm. was a pretty raw text. I did. Like, so I, I'd have, like, so I got married there and the, so Anna was my best, best man is probably the wrong term, but she, she was the person I picked. Congratulations. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> so like myself and Anna would be like really, really close since we were kids. She's about 18 or 20 months younger than me. And there was one, there was one day I was up in, in a pub, the Blue Light pub, which is just at the foot of the Dublin mountains, not far from where, where we live. And I sent her a text just saying, will you, will, will you come and pick us up? Because I didn't want to get a taxi because I knew taxi men would talk to you. And I'd been full of drinking drugs for, I don't know how long the, I'd been going for. And um, she, she she drove up the, it's a narrow kind of country road. And she saw me coming down with, with the fella I was with. And I got in the car, she dropped us home. I went straight to sleep and whatever length of time later, I kind of resurfaced. And she just sent me a text. It was something along the lines of you're the furthest thing from the brother I used to look up to. Um, and she mentioned the sight of walking me down, of seeing me walk towards her on the country road, like out of my mind. Um, and, and even then when I when she dropped me back to my mum's house, there was two or three young lads there with a match programme or something wanting me to sign it. So I was signing an autograph like off my tits on drugs and I don't know how hungover or how drunk I could have described myself, but it was a mess. Um, so what she said was true. Um, and her being her, she softened the text at the end with like something like love you loads, kiss, kiss, kiss. But it was those little moments, it was like little punches in the face where it, it was, it became more difficult just to bat it away as the overreaction of someone who doesn't really know what I'm going through. Do you know the things you tell yourself? To, to justify keep going so yeah it's why interventions work you know it's the shock of seeing three members of your family or something that like that lined up or having somebody come over from England or you know and you're like that that is the whole purpose yeah there's there, there's loads of different views on that and, and and I'll hear people as well and I've been in loads of sitting rooms with people who've asked me to come in and say how do we get our son or daughter to stop drinking like what's the magic phrase what's the the lecture or the advice or the you know what's the killer speech um, and some people say you can't like you've just to step out of the way and let them free fall for as far or as long as they need till they get to the point where they're in so much pain that they've got to stop and others then will promote the idea that actually giving them a verbal punch in the face along the way actually assists them on that process the free fall idea there will be people who listen to this podcast who are acting as a nurse effectively mm. for a loved one maybe it's a brother or a partner or a son and they don't know what to do because they're continuing to supply them either with love or housing or money. Do you think in those situations you still say, let go? I'm really reluctant to be given advice to people or to be given people specific instructions on what to do because every scenario is different. And I understand how counterintuitive it is to, to, to think that the right, the most supportive thing you can do to a loved one who's in self-destruct mode is to get out of the way and 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 let them let them do it to themselves um but i hear a lot of people i'm in contact with loads of people who are recovering addicts and recovering alcoholics and they'll actually look back and go you know and they'll talk about the the fact that they're it needed to get as bad as it got for them to stop. So it was when their, you know, their partner would stop making phone calls to the job, making up reasons as to why they didn't show up, where partners would stop or loved ones would stop lending the money to pay off the drug dealer or their, their, their gambling debt, or where family members would provide them accommodation when they kept failing to make rent because they were pissing their rent up the wall. Like you, you, we all instinctively do those things to the people we love if we're in a position to do them, but loads of people in recovery will turn around and say it was actually when I got things got as bad as they got at the very end weirdly um, that's that that I got the the gift of desperation is what the, the the phrase you'll often hear which is really weird to, it'll be really difficult for people to hear that now and go okay I get the theory of that I'm delighted for all these people you've met who are in recovery who reflect on their past as saying that but they're sitting now maybe living with someone who they know is an active addict and who they know you can't imagine, Jesus, what are their life going to be like if I remove myself as a support? 
Like it's a horrible thought to think that the, the, the appropriate thing to do to an addict is to stop enabling their behaviour. But sometimes supporting an active alcoholic is enabling them to keep drinking and to keep drugging or keep making things worse. So I, I don't have a, a one size fits all solution to this. I, I'm, I'm, I don't think I've ever, ever put myself in a position where I'd start telling people what to do. But it's 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 a heartbreaking situation for everyone. Anyone who knows it, anyone who's related to or in a relationship with or living next door to someone who's who, who's in active addiction, it's heartbreaking. One of the things uh, about the book that I, I really love about it is its honesty in talking about those moments. And as you say at the start of the book, you also reveal um, something that happened to you very early on in your life uh, when you were a victim of abuse by um, a physiotherapist. That must have been really hard to talk about and it must have been an extreme decision to get to that point where you could be honest about that. And I hope I don't you mm. don't mind me mentioning it now because you're doing a service to people by being open. I recall being in um, very early on in my career, probably 2004, being in the Shelburne Hotel with a victim of abuse who was trying to tell his story. And the really sad irony of it was he was almost whispering because he was so afraid that the ladies at the next table would hear him and that even in telling his story, he still couldn't, the, the thought that the people would hear it mm. was so horrifying for him because he was still coming to grips with it himself. And I just found myself thinking, here we are in this amazing, beautiful, salubrious surroundings. And the person who is the victim feels like he's in the wrong to talk. I can relate to that. Um, so what happened to me happened when I was 14 and I, for years and years, very effectively just stored it away in the back of my mind. Where I thought, like it was never a struggle. Like I'd never be sitting with you going, now's today I should tell Nadine. It, it was always something I thought, I, I'll never speak about this because I thought it was it would be a reason for you to step away. You being a friend, a teammate, a colleague, a partner, loved one or whatever, that you, you would think less of me as a result because I thought less of myself. Um, 98, 99% of the thinking I did around what happened to me was focused on why I let it happen to me. That was the kind of language I would use in my head. Um, and I would be as disgusted with myself as it is possible for a person to be. So even words like disgusted or self-hatred, like the, like the, like times a hundred, like exaggerate that as much as you possibly can and imagine sitting in a couch and genuinely thinking that about yourself. So this is where things like getting drunk and taking a load of drugs really helps because you, you just kind of, you, you blur out all that stuff. Like a huge amount of people who are in, who are addicts, who have issues with addiction, who are in recovery, um, are survivors or victims, whatever you like to call them. So... For a long, long time, I thought I'll never speak about this. And then over the last few years, like, so I got sober when I was 32 and I would, a few things actually happened over the last few years, um, which kind of forced me to confront this all over again. Not all over again, because I don't think I ever did initially, but there was, I, I went to a, an adolescent psychotherapy three day workshop course into 20, in 2016. And the woman in the course said something like, um, just to help us be a bit more empath empathic about what a teenager is going through and how difficult it is sometimes to ask for help. They said, she said, can you think of a time in your own adolescence where you were in need of support, but for whatever reason you couldn't access it? And, and she said, kind of don't think of anything too dramatic or, or difficult. And I, I just immediately thought of this and I couldn't shake it from my head. And then a story came up in British football at the end of that year where a lot of prominent former footballers spoke about it. And I'd be on second captains talking about it. Um, and then I was doing an adolescent masters where we were constantly in touch with our own adolescent experience. This is the wording. And I couldn't shake it from my head. It was it was constant. So for from about 2015 or 16, it was always in my head. And I was still in weekly therapy at the time. So I would bring it up all the time. Um, and I would talk about it and I would talk around it. And, and and when I got to the point of considering writing the book, I, I met with um, 
one of the people from Gill and, and she was great. And the only way you just get a feeling from somewhere you go, I think I'm in good hands here. And I, I'm obviously, I had no experience of what feeling in good hands is in relation to a publishing company, but I just got a good sense from her. So we had two or three cups of coffee over two or three different moments, uh, days. And then I think on the last day I said to her, so listen, I'll be honest with you. One of the reasons I'm delaying and committing to this is I can't imagine writing a story about my own life without putting this in. And putting this in is going to be a pretty big step. This is why I'm I'm, I'm kind of laboring this decision a little bit. Um, and then when I decided to write it, this was the stuff I wrote first. I just said to Dion, we met in a, in a coffee, um, in a cafe in Monkstown. And I said, I want to start by writing all this. Because it wasn't like that I wanted to get it out of the way, but it was just, it would have just contaminated everything else if I didn't get it out of my head and onto a laptop. Um, so that's what I did. I don't know how many thousand words I wrote on this. And then throughout the course of the year, because it was material for a book, mm-hmm. um, I had to talk to Dion about it and then the publishers about it. And then we had to move it around from chapter to chapter. And it was like we were discussing the content of a story rather than something that was deeply shameful and hidden and secretive that it used to be. So by the time the release date came and I was on the Late Late Show talking about it, um, I'd taken a load of tiny little steps over a number of years to prepare me for it. So if you told me five years ago, I'm going to put it in a book and talk to Ryan Tuberty in the Late Late Show about it, that would have felt like, okay, you're, you're, you're asking me to climb Everest in like an hour. It would have felt too big too soon. But by the time I got to the stage where I was writing about it and talking about it, I just felt ready. Like all the little tiny little building blocks that have to be put in place felt like they were in place. You talk in the book about how you've done the six foot journey yourself over to the other side of the Mm. room to the therapist chair. And it's obviously something that brings you a huge amount of um, happiness, actually, in terms of that you're helping other people and you're a very vocal person in that community. Um, I wonder... Though, you know, are there still vulnerabilities that you have to encounter? You talked at the start of the interview about, you know, this idea of New Year's resolutions of not really having any, but just taking each day as it comes and trying to get to the end of the day in a good way. But sometimes like um, if there's, I don't know, a gift grub sketch that gets in on you or if somebody has a has a run at you or pop at you in the way you mentioned Eamon Dunphy mm-hmm. did in the book. Um, do those moments still rankle slightly are you able to not allow them to kind of hinder you in terms of your own sense of security online criticism and negative commentary from other people about me i can't remember the last time i was impacted by something something that somebody said negatively about me um like i remember like one of the when you're a pundit on tv like go back to when i was a footballer all the abuse is to your face and it's loud and it's vicious and it's uncensored and it's it can be hard. And then the little bit older I got and I was working on the panel and the commentary is all online. So it's anonymous tweeting or people on a laptop, which is a different kind of way of com- communicating it. But I remember then that w- one of the things, the the repeal campaign, I remember I, I started just to do the thing. So I'm, I'm going to take a position on this, a public one. I'm going to write about why I think what I think. And there's, there's no way of entering that debate or conversation without someone who disagrees and agreeing with you, telling you and giving you really vicious, horrible reasons why they think you're you're taking the wrong stance. And I remember going, OK, on a minute by minute, if needs be, or hourly basis, just practice this notion that it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of me. It just doesn't matter. So I'm not going to engage with anyone who maybe has a really well thought out reason or just a hate filled reason to, to knock me. I'm just not going to make it any of my business. Um, and I heard that phrase years ago. It's none of my business what other people think of me, which meant nothing to me when I heard it first. But that's the kind of thing I keep repeating to myself. And when you write a book like this and you write, like my, I've talked about my relationship with my body, my, my sex life, my childhood, my mental health, my gender, my family, my dad, my childhood, everything is out there. And I just thought, like, I'm really going to have to practice this. Um, and it doesn't seem like an effort anymore. So I, by the time it got to the release, what I said earlier, I wonder how people are going to be with me. The loveliest part of all this, one of the many lovely parts, is that 
this is probably too blunt a way to phrase it. I kind of don't give a shit what people think. So it's lovely that you said this book is that you enjoy the book. But if you were sitting here and you were ripping the book apart, I kind of go, that's grand. Nadine likes books that are different to the kind of books I like. And there's room for the twos in the world. And I'll go off and do whatever I'm doing tonight. Well, if you were to listen to the praise, you'd also have to listen to the criticism because fair is fair. You can't hear only one side of it. Mm. So it's easier to find the kind of structure within yourself to proceed, I think. Because it's unavoidable. Like it's like I, I, I was I interviewed Blind Boy in my podcast recently and he used the phrase that if, if you if you if you're in the pub in public life. um, you've got to expect someone somewhere is going to think you're a prick and call you a prick. It's like going out on a football pitch expecting there to be no opposition. Like you've got to accept that there is going to be people out there and they're going to say stuff. So it, it's inevitable. I have to say, I interviewed him once a few, well, I've interviewed him a few times, but I interviewed him a couple of years ago and we went for a pint afterwards and he'd taken off the, the bag and we were in the pub and I was like, this is the smartest guy of all time. Mm. Not one yeah. person looking at him. I know, and I, cause he, he, he had the bag on for the interview. He arrived with the bag, he put the bag on, and we had a chat about it all. And I said, like, what's the story with the bag? The and Russell. The yeah, Russell. The Russell and the vaping man <laughs> again. And then, and I find what he says really interesting, but also the bag, like, he, he to use his own phrase, like, he, 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 he does get a kick out of the reaction when the, the fellow who looks like a fucking Egypt makes sense. He also sent a text ahead of time. This shows how innocent I was. Um, he said, do you have cans? And I was like, headphones, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> he had demands, did he? <laughs> I think the only thing we had was some sort of raspberry uh, flavoured lager, which wasn't particularly what he was thinking of. But um, I, I won't keep you too much longer, Richie. Um, I suppose um, one thing I, I really did want to mention um, is the uh, the first Fortnite Festival. It's a festival mm. I've been involved with myself um, for the past couple of years and I'll be doing an event at it again uh, in early January. And you have a great event lined up as well. So you're going to be talking to Jim Carroll at the festival. And can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, Jim asked me uh, recently, would I come on? It actually falls on my birthday. Um, I'm turning 41 on the 14th of January. So that's the date that this event is happening. So Bring cake. Yeah, well, I told Jim to bring cake. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's. I think it's an hour, hour and a half. And I actually don't know specifically what we're going to be chatting about. But I, I was involved in the first Fortnite festival several years ago. And I knew the lads who started it quite well. I studied with one of them. Um, and I just loved the idea behind the whole thing. Another question, uh, before we get to the key question of what song you would like to play out on, could be a song that you feel really sums you up very well, or could be just a song that you love. Do you know your wife Fiona's phone number now? No, I don't. I still don't know her number at all. Um, but I don't need to. She's in the phone as Fiona. Just as long as I have the phone with me and I can keep reading, I'm, I'm okay. All right. Would you like to play a song for her or a song maybe that you just love? Do you know what I'll do? I, 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 Queen, love of my life. Um, when I listen to it now, it has a very different impact on me than it did back then. And it kind of parallels the process of writing the difficult stuff in the book. Because you know when you really remember this, the times which are tough and you remember how you felt? And like really remember it, not just gloss over it. And, and you really get into the dark days. And then you compare it to how you are right now, sitting on this couch. I, I My gratitude for where I am now just is through the roof. Um, and when I hear that song, I can very easily remember how I felt on the time, sitting on my own in the bedroom with a can of Stella, thinking my world is over. Um, and realising I was wrong. Like, it didn't end. And the feeling I had then, they didn't last forever. So play that one. Awesome. Well, Richie, thank you so much for being a guest on uh, My Roots Are Showing. The book, of course, is called Recovering and we can still look forward to your contributions with RTE and Second Captains and elsewhere. And of course, the first Fortnite Festival as well. Uh, just go online. There are amazing, amazing events wow. happening for the first two weeks of January, not just in, in uh, Dublin, where we currently are, um, but also uh, in many, many counties throughout the country. So it's well worth checking out firstfortnite.ie. All right, this is Queen. Richie, thanks so much. Thanks, Amelia. Oh, hurry back, hurry back. Don't take it away from me because you don't know.
My thanks once again to Richie Sadlier. An absolute pleasure to have him on the podcast. As mentioned, he will be at the first Fortnite Festival. He's on at the Sugar Club in conversation with Jim Carroll on January 14th. And for more details on that, you can go to firstfortnight.ie. As ever, if you'd like to contact me, you can get in touch via my Twitter handle at Nadina Regan or the show page at My Roots Are Show. Please also consider reviewing this podcast if you enjoyed it. If you didn't enjoy it, don't review it. Don't go near it. Don't bother. Um, But you can go onto iTunes and give us a little star rating or write some kind words, you know. (laughs) Love that. And uh, yeah, that is pretty much it from me for another episode. Till the next time, this is Nadina Regan signing out. Do take care. (laughs)